Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Ophelia. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in November in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. So we are approaching winter now, so make sure you keep yourself warm and comfortable when looking up at the night sky, as a lot of astronomy is waiting patiently. On the evening of the 17th and the early hours of the 18th of November, if you look towards the northeast and turn slightly to the right, you'll find the constellation of Leo. The Leonid's meteor shower is named after this constellation because the radiant of the shower is at the head of Leo. This shower is visible from both the northern and southern hemispheres, so, so no matter where you are in the world, if you're away from light pollution and have a clear sky, most of you should be able to sit back and watch this annual event. This shower is fairly observable and is predicted to have a rate of about 10 meteors per hour, as the moon will only be on about a five-day-old waxing crescent, so not too bright in the sky. This month, we're very lucky to be able to see two planets in opposition, my two favourite planets actually, Jupiter and Uranus. This means that they will be opposite to the Sun from our point of view, and opposition is the best time to view any planet as they are brighter than usual because we can see the lit side, the whole of the lit side of that planet. Jupiter will reach opposition on the 2nd and 3rd of November, and you might say that this is a rather rare celestial event, as it happens only once every 13 months. It will be visible all night, and the magnitude will be about minus 2.9. Which is pretty bright. Mm. Anyone in the city can see that. Uranus will reach opposition later in the month on the 13th of November, and it will be about 18.6 AU away from the Earth. So about 18.6 times further away from the sun than the Earth is. It will have a magnitude of plus 5.6, making it possible to spot even with the unaided eye, but just about. If you get a chance to stargaze from a less light polluted area, and if the weather is on your side, you might be able to spot it. If not, you can try using a telescope if you have access to one. Through a telescope, Uranus appears as a lightly green tinted disc you might even be able to spot some of its moons. If you miss the opposition on the 13th, don't worry, as Uranus will stay bright until mid-December. So Venus will be visible throughout this month in the early morning from around 2.30am up until dawn in the southeast of the sky, near the southeastern horizon. Joining Venus in the sky is the aforementioned Jupiter, which will start this month by rising above the eastern horizon just after 5.30pm, and then it will set in the west just after 6am. So you've got the whole night to see it then. Um, but by the end of the month, it will only be visible between about 1 and 4.30 in the morning. Saturn will also be accessible this month in the evenings, but towards the end of the month, will only be visible for about two hours. So the best time to see it is until about 7pm, 5 to 7pm. Neptune will be best viewed throughout this month from 6 to 7 in the evening, but make sure you bring a telescope as it is the furthest planet from the sun 
and you can't see it with the unaided eye. November is also a good month to view the Cepheus constellation in the far northern sky. In Greek myth, Cepheus was the father of Andromeda and husband to Cassiopeia, both of whom have their own constellations, slightly to the right of Cepheus. The brightest star of the king Cepheus is Alpha Cephei, also known as Alderomin, and it's hotter and about 20 times brighter than our sun. You might be happy to hear that Orion the Hunter is returning to the south of our night sky. It's one of the most recognisable constellations with two of its stars, Putagus and Rigel, being in the top 10 brightest stars in the sky. You don't even need a telescope or binoculars to make out the blue-white tint given off, given off by Rigel, or the deep reddish colour that makes Betelgeuse stand out among the night sky stars. Just below Orion's belt, you might be able to make out the Orion Nebula, otherwise known as M42, which is a diffuse nebula in the Milky Way, visible both with a telescope and the unaided eye. November is a good time to view the Pleiades Star Cluster, which is also known as the Seven Sisters, or M45. So in Greek mythology, the Seven Sisters were called Maya, Alcyone, Asterope, Seleno, Tegeti, Electra, and Merope. This star cluster is found just above the constellation of Taurus, and it's also the home to the star Atlas, who in Greek mythology was the father of the Seven Sisters, and the star Pleione, who in Greek mythology was the mother of the Seven Sisters. If you get bored of the Leonid meteor shower, although I'm sure you won't, you could try and find this cluster, as it will be its highest point around midnight on the night of the 18th of November. If you take any photos of the night sky, you can tweet them to us at Astronomers. You might also want to check out our Night Sky Hollers blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. Before we end the Cosmic Diary, just want to say thank you to Lily, uh, who was our work experience student earlier this year, and also Lexi, as always, for helping us write the script. Thanks, Lily. Thanks, Lexi. But now, time for our Cosmic News. Okay, so on to our cosmic news. And in this section of the podcast, we bring up two new news stories from the world of astronomy and space science. Uh, Last month, we spoke about some findings from an exoplanet in viewed, studied by JWST. Uh, The exoplanet was K218b. And what was our second story, Ophelia? It was also a JWST story. Uh, it tried to uh, solve the Hubble tension. So astronomers have been trying to measure something called the uh, the Hubble constant, which tells us how fast the uh, universe is expanding. And using different methods, we get different answers. And, well, JWST, spoiler alert, hasn't solved the Hubble tension. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Um, at least it tried. <laughs> yeah. And we asked our listeners this month if they could think of any good names for K218b. So the exoplanet currently has a, a designation, but not a formal name. Um, so answers we got included uh, ROG World. That was our one, wasn't mm-hmm, it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always a fan of Eddie, name of my dog. <laughs> um, any other ideas? What else did we hear? Um, someone said Katie. Oh, like K2, K2. but Katie, yeah, like it. Um, I think one of our favourites is Mariner. Mm, 
that's nice. That's a very nice one because there might be water. Naked yeah. water, yeah. Um, lovely. All right. So that's our news stories from last month. We should move on to this month. And as challenging as it was to stay away from JWST news, because there's always JWST mm. news, we thought we should try something else. Um, so do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? You could go first. I think I went first last time, didn't I? I don't remember. I'll go first. Okay. So my news story for you this month is really a correction on a news story I shared with you a few months ago. An update. An update, <laughs> not a retraction. <laughs> um, so in the news this week was some findings um, based on some data from Insight. And for anyone who, who doesn't remember Insight, it's gone now, but Insight was a lander on Mars. So uh, Insight was an, a NASA spacecraft which landed on Mars in November 2022. Uh, sorry, landed on Mars in November 2018 um, and sent its last data back in December 2022, so late last year. Um, at that point, there was too much dust covering its solar panels for it to get enough charge, so it, it stopped working. Uh, but when it did work, it measured Mars quakes. Mm. Mm. So seismic activity on underneath the surface of Mars. So like earthquakes, but on Mars. So Mars quakes. Um, so we've spoken about InSight a couple of times. One time, I think we reported on its demise when it mm -hmm. finally ran out of power. Um, and we also spoke about some findings from InSight because it records these Mars quakes and it recorded thousands of them during its lifetime. Over 1,300 Mars quakes over that, what, four-year period? Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. And some of these Mars quakes were directly traced to impacts, which is really cool. So a meteorite hits the surface of Mars hard enough to cause shockwaves through the planet, sometimes for incredible distances, which are then recorded by InSight. And a couple of times, uh, InSight recorded seismic activity, Mars quakes, and then scientists combed back through orbiter data and found evidence of fresh craters. So they found the impact which caused the recording on the in InSight, which is really cool. And on the, in May 2022, it recorded its strongest ever Mars quake mm -hmm. um, and its longest ever Mars quake. It went on for six hours, sort of reverberating around the planet, wow. and most of them are about an hour in length. And it was thought at the time that this was caused by an impact. And I think I said on the podcast that we think it was caused mm -hmm. by an impact. Yeah. Between last year and, and this year, astronomers have been looking through all the data available to them to try and find the impact. Um, so we have images of the surface of Mars, which are updated all the time. So if a rock has hit Mars, mm -hmm. we should now be able to find the crater. And for a, a Mars quake of this scale, um, there would be a significant impact. They think the crater would be about 300 meters in diameter. Okay. So we would be able to find it. One thing I like about this story is this wasn't just a NASA sort of research project. It wasn't just the team from InSight looking at their own data. They had to collaborate with other spacecraft to look at data from I was going to say from the air, but the spacecraft are in space <laughs> from above to look at the planet. So they collaborated with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, with the Mars Odyssey spacecraft data, with the Mars Express spacecraft, which is ESA's, with HOPE, which is the Emirates Mars spacecraft, uh, with Tian-1, which is a spacecraft of the Chinese National Space Agency, and with the, the Mars Orbiter mission of the Indian Space Agency as well, uh, which is no longer active um, as of the end of last year, December 2022, but was a very successful mission until it ran mm. out of juice. So they looked at all of this data, and in all of that data, they can find no evidence of a crater that has appeared in the right time frame. Oh, wow. Yeah. So my update 
from from a research paper, we think this Mars quake now wasn't from an impact. It was from seismic activity under the the crust of Mars, from within the crust of Mars. Oh wow! Mm. Because didn't they they thought that they saw a meteor a meteorite landing on Mars around about the same time as a Mars quake? Is that what happened last time? I think that might have been linked to the other impacts, oh, okay. um, but not linked to this particular recording, which has a name, the, the, the event, the recording. Again, catchy. Uh, it's known as S1222A. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I'm just going to keep calling it the recording. <laughs> so yeah, not an impact. Hmm. How big was this? Oh, how powerful was this mask like again? Um, it was about 4.7. On, on the Richter scale, on the magnitude scale that we use here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a look of what of what that would mean on the surface of the Earth. Um, so we use this, this logarithmic scale, which goes from one up to more than nine. So more than nine is total destruction. A one is about a, a micro-earthquake, so you wouldn't feel it if it was happening where you were. And then a four to five is what they call a, a light earthquake. Okay. Um, so there's, on Earth, up to 15,000 of these happen every single year. So they're very common on Earth. Of this size? Of this, yeah, magnitude. Yeah, yeah four to five, so 4.7. And it's described as you might see noticeable shaking of objects or rattling of windows. And there would be minor damage, but not significant damage. So if this was happening on the Earth, would be okay. Right. But also it's happening on Mars. Yeah. So we're definitely okay. <laughs> but this is a great example of how science works, though. You get, you get the data, the evidence, you do your best of it to come up with um, an explanation and then you get more data and then you realize that actually your first conclusions weren't quite right mm-hmm. and then you make it better yeah you improve it definitely and it's a nice example of international collaboration which is also a big part of science yeah mm-hmm. yeah definitely the reason this was in the news is because it's interesting but also because it means Mars is more seismologically active than we previously thought. Yeah. So on Earth, our earthquakes are caused by our tectonic plates. So we have these big slabs of crust that are moving around. You can't see on the recording, but I'm moving my hands around <laughs> like the tectonic plate. And they, they grind against each other um, constantly. They're always moving. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there's some friction, uh, which causes them to sort of be, be held up. And when that friction is released, it's that shockwave. Uh, which is an earthquake here on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, Mars doesn't have tectonic plates, so it was thought not to be active in the same way. Um, but the thought is that it's the planet itself cooling down and shrinking, and that causes different sort of stresses in the crust and in the material of the planet, which then fracture and release pressure shock waves mm-hmm. that we're seeing. Ah, cool. Do you know, so the other Mars quakes that insight detected the ones that are actual mass quakes and not by impacts how big were they generally as big as this or mostly smaller um this was the longest mass quake recorded it was a six hour one hmm. i don't have a sense of of the strength of all the other mass quakes hmm. okay and the the paper i should say was published the lead author was a dr fernando from the university of oxford well done fernando Good job. <laughs> well, maybe Mars is more interesting than I thought. <laughs> yeah, stop hating on Mars. <laughs> so there's my update on Mars for you. Can you tell me what your cosmic news story is? So 
I have two, actually, but they are related. Mm -hmm. uh, both about asteroids mm -hmm. and about missions to asteroids. The first one uh, is about OSIRIS-REx. OSIRIS-REx was a, a spacecraft that uh, visited an asteroid called Bennu and took samples from this asteroid. And it returned um, a few weeks ago on the 24th of September, and it parachuted down to the surface of the Earth and carried this really precious cache of material that it grabbed from, from the asteroid. And NASA have uh, started to analyse uh, this material. And the collection was so successful, they actually took more than they bargained for what they planned. And so it was literally overfilling the canister and was kind of like mm. spilling out from, from, from the sides. So the reason why they wanted to go to Bennu uh, is because Bennu is, is known as a, as a carbonaceous or a C-type asteroid, which means that it's uh, made up of uh, a lot of carbon and also volatiles, which are compounds that can be easily vaporized, so like water. And one of the tasks was to see how much water this asteroid has. And uh, preliminary results says that actually there is quite a lot of water in a clay sort of material in the asteroid. And it also found uh, a lot of carbon and sulfur as well, both of which are important for the building blocks of life. Mm, that's cool. Mm. Um, so you say it grabbed a ton of material. Do you know how much? Yeah, it grabbed uh, about 250 grams of material. Okay. Um, so this isn't the first mission to get samples from, from an asteroid. So the Japanese space agency, JAXA, had two missions, uh, Hayabusa 1 and Hayabusa 2. And they took samples from uh, different asteroids, but there were only about five grams each. Um, so uh, OSIRIS-REx collected a load more yeah. of all different sizes as well. So some of them are, you know, like dust-like particles. So these are the types that wouldn't be able to survive on the ground if these meteorites were falling through the ground, they would just burn mm. up in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. They also got bigger chunks of the asteroids as well. And so the plan now is to distribute this material to scientists from around the world um, so that they can study it and also to put them on display in museums for people to see. Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad they're going to share the samples. That's pretty cool. And it came back in September, you said, and they've already got results from it. Mm. Wow, working fast. Mm, they must yeah. have been very excited. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and the, the discovery that there's quite a lot of water in this asteroid is also exciting because, well, not only can it sort of help us figure out how the Earth got lots of water, um, one idea is that asteroids like Bennu brought water to, to the Earth when they crashed onto the surface, but also potentially in the future we can use them to refuel our rockets if we were to go on mm. you know, long, long journeys through space. And how would we use the water to fuel our rockets? You can split up the hydrogen and the oxygen. Ah, okay, atoms, and then burn those. And, yeah, mm -hmm. which is really cool, really exciting. The second... Oh, yep, you oh, have two sorry. new stories. Go ahead. What's the second? The second is about the Psyche mission, mm -hmm. uh, which launched uh, on the 13th of October this year, and it's going to another asteroid called Psyche. And Psyche is a different type of asteroid to Bennu. It's what we call an M-type 
uh, asteroids, which means it's metallic. So it's made up of metals instead of rock. And this is, uh, Psyche is actually the 16th uh, asteroid ever discovered. Mm. And it's the biggest M-type asteroid that we know of. Mm -hmm. And it's particularly cool because these types of asteroids, astronomers think, were the cause of failed planets. It's, they're probably made up of a lot of iron. And so by studying the, this material, we can learn more about the cause of the rocky planets, like ours, and help us find out how planets were formed in the first place. Mm, because we can't get to the core of our own planet to no, study it. No. So yeah. we use things like seismology, like you talked about on, mm -hmm. on Mars, to study the cause of the Earth. Um, sometimes we do get samples of M-type asteroids when they fall through the atmosphere, but of course... When they burn up in the atmosphere, its material would have been changed slightly. Um, and so we could get a pristine sample from the asteroid itself. Um, mm, then we can awesome. actually study it a bit better. And do you know how long it will take to get there? The journey is about 3.6 billion kilometers. Okay. <laughs> it's quite, quite a long journey. The journey will take about six years. Wow. So Psyche um, has to travel about 3.6 billion kilometers to get to the asteroid. Okay. I assume it's not going straight there, but it's doing some, it's orbiting the sun. It'll probably do some uh, gravity assists. Mm. Yeah. Swing by some other places. Mm. Oh, that's a long time to wait. <laughs> <laughs> and But what's really cool, actually, one NASA scientist working on this mission said, that the people who actually get to analyse their sample might not even be born yet, which mm. I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. Something for the future generations. That is nice. Also, I've whenever I've read about this particular asteroid and this particular mission, I've been calling it Psyche this whole time. It might be Psyche. It might. I don't know. <laughs> no, just because it's it's Nike, so I've been thinking about Psyche, but it's pronounced. <laughs> it's spelled differently. It's named after the Greek goddess of the soul. Mm, because our souls are made of iron. Mm, apparently, this goddess was born a mere mortal and then later married uh, Eros, the god of love. Mm, okay. Yeah, it was discovered, the asteroid itself, mm -hmm. not the goddess. It was discovered in 1852 by an Italian astronomer, Annibale de Gasparis. Awesome. So that's one mission which has just returned to Earth with some asteroid samples, one mission that's just left. There's some nice symmetry there. Hmm. Do you remember when OSIRIS-REx left the Earth? OSIRIS-REx was launched in September 2016, mm -hmm. and it collected uh, the material from uh, Bennu in 2020. Okay. And it's only just returned. Mm -hmm. And why is it called OSIRIS-REx? It's uh, an anagram of some sort. Mm -hmm. Can't remember what it is. Acronym. Acronym. <laughs> it's a secret puzzle. Um, I've got it on my phone. Oh, okay for it. Okay, are you ready? Yes. It stands for the Origins, Spectral Identification, Resource Identification, and Security Regolith Explorer, or OSIRIS-REx. I prefer OSIRIS-REx. Yeah. Security <laughs> Regolith Explorer. And Bennu was formerly called 1999 RQ36. Was it discovered in 1999? I'm guessing so. <laughs> So, that's our two news stories of the month. Yes, it was. It was. At the beginning of November, we will put a post out on Twitter 
slash x. And I told you what my two favourite planets are, Jupiter and Uranus. Let us know what planet is your favourite, seeing as there are quite a few of them up in the month of November. Yeah, see if you can see one in the night sky and tell us your favourite. Mm. Or tell us your least favourite. Ophelia's is Mars. <laughs> <laughs> All that's left to say is keep looking up. Mm-hmm.